2: I don't think people can quite imagine how terrifying it was. Those victims did not die quickly or easily, except Nicholas. And um, it was so savage, so chaotic, and the worst of it was so inefficient.
3: That was Helen Rappaport talking about the downfall of the Romanovs. that the last Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, and his family were executed by the Bolsheviks in July 1918. The Romanov's final moments are explored by the historical author Helen Rappaport in a new book and in an article for our August issue, both of which pay particular attention to the question of why attempts to save their lives ultimately failed. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Helen recently to find out more.
4: So, Helen, the, the brutal assassination um, of Tsar Nicholas and his family, we're coming up to the anniversary, but it's an event that continues to shock even to this day. Um, perhaps before we get into the ins and outs of of, of what happened, you could take us back to the, the, the 16th and 17th of July 1918, just to kind of explain
2: what happened. Well, the Romnoffs had been in captivity for 16 months now. And um, when they were moved to Ekaterinburg at the end of April, they found themselves in a much more confined prison-like situation. And so their lives there had become very monotonous very wearisome they were locked up in fairly limited accommodation through the heat of summer with all the windows sealed by one small one the windows themselves were painted white so they couldn't see the outside world and on top of that the entire house was surrounded with two large palisades so you know they were very very closely guarded and They really turned in on themselves in those final days because their only solace really in that deeply oppressive and rather foreboding situation was in fact that they had each other still. That they had their Christian faith and they were able to at least be together. That was the fundamental important thing for them was being together. So the evening evening. Of the 16th of July, it was you know, the whole of that day was very much like any other day. They had little brief breaks of recreation in the garden. One of the girls would stay indoors and read with Alexandra, who wasn't very well for most of the time. And she now was just basically having scriptural and biblical um, sources read to her. She'd become very kind of uh, fatalistic and um, rather pious. And, um, the family gathered as as normal, you know, for a few frugal, very frugal meals, played games of cards to keep Alexei amused and I think in her diary, Alexandra mentioned that one they'd had the luxury of one of the I think Alexei had the luxury being able to have a bath um so all the very small things. Um, took on a much larger significance in their lives because their lives were so, so monotonous. And that night they went to bed as usual and one of the last things I think Alexandra recorded in her diary was the temperature, which she did religiously every day. And they went to bed and then about midnight or so the family were woken up by the commandant who told them that there was the city was in a dangerous situation because they knew the Czech legions and the whites were fighting their way towards Ekaterinburg there was a lot of firing going on in and around the environs of Ekaterinburg and they were told that they had to get dressed and go downstairs into the basement for their own safety And it was also intimated that they were likely then to be moved on to another place, to another house somewhere. So there was nothing initially to alarm them. They'd had a lot of intimidation and disturbances of threats of being moved and threats of, um, um, you know, being taken somewhere else. So initially it didn't um alarm them. They got dressed very calmly. In fact, Jurovsky, the commandant, got rather annoyed that they were taking so long about it. And they were led down these 23 steps, down from their rooms on the first floor, out across the courtyard, and into a sort of um semi-basement storage room. I don't really call it an assassination, and it certainly wasn't an execution. It was a murder, pure and simple, because the one thing I stress to people is bear in mind they had no legal representation. There was no trial. There was no right of appeal. It wasn't in any any shape or form a kind of um, judicial sentence so they were murdered very very brutally now yurovsky the commandant of the house had the previous night um decided who was going to kill who and had sort of handed out the different assortment of weapons there was a mixture of brownings colts and mainly army issue russian army issue nagants which actually were very inefficient and many of them didn't fire properly when the time came and he nominated one killer for each of the members of the family, for their doctor, and for the three servants who were with them, Demidova, Truk, and Kharitonov. Um, But unfortunately, at the 11th hour, literally, some of the guards said, no, we're not going to shoot the girls, and refused point blank to kill the girls. They said, why... Why must we kill them? They're perfectly nice girls. You know, we have spoken to them. And we have made friends with them. They're perfectly decent people. Why should they be, have to be killed like this? So um, that meant that Jurovsky sa- suddenly found himself short of three or four killers. But we're not actually sure how many in the end. It's probably about seven or eight were then gathered downstairs in a room adjacent to the basement room where the family had been led in immediately they were led in the room alexandra always rather hoity-toity in fact right to the end still acting in this rather uh, unrepentant imperial way so well, why are there no chairs why can't we sit down and she wasn't a well woman and um so and also Alexei had literally had to be carried downstairs in his father's, father's arms because he was still recovering from a bad attack of bleeding in the joints of his leg and was still very frail. So two chairs were brought in. Alexandra sat on one and Alexei next to her on the other. And the other members of the family and their servants were sort of gathered around them. And again, you know, they had no real inkling at all of what was going to happen. I think they were expecting an announcement that they were going to be taken somewhere else. And in fact, what then happened was Uroski, the commandant, came into the room with a piece of paper, which a very brief statement, it wasn't by any means any kind of judicious judicial statement saying, uh, which he read out to Nicholas saying, you know, the members of the Euro-regional Soviet have de- and the government have decided that you must be shot uh, as sort of pretty much an enemy of the people. And Nicholas was so taken aback, he actually asked him to read it again. He was so, I think he was so completely um, overwhelmed by having suddenly having this dropped on him with no chance to prepare or anything. And the next thing, before anything more could be said, all the assassins, all the killers started firing. But unfortunately, although they were each instructed to kill a specific target, obviously all these devoted, dedicated Bolsheviks wanted to be able to claim, I shot the Tsar. And so they all fired first at Nicholas. And the irony is, of course, that the Tsar had the quickest and easiest death. So he died first very quickly, immediately. And then there was this absolute frenzy of screaming, hysteria, Firing, smoke, acrid fumes. It was a very dark, poorly lit room. And if there's one extraordinary thing I learned from a ballistics expert who I spoke to when I wrote my first book in Katerinburg, which was specifically about the murders, he said you would not believe how easy it is for people to miss in close proximity when it's chaotic and when the conditions are the visibility isn't good. And so chaos reigned. And eventually, um, well, Alexandra was killed quite quickly. Uh, but the girls were huddling in corners, as were some of the servants. Their, their, their chambermaid, uh, Anna dimitrova was rushing around the room screaming, clutching a pillow, which actually was stuffed full of Alexandra's jewels. And they were all savagely finished off. Eventually, Alexei the haemophiliac child. It took him longer to kill him than his own father. He was shot, but the girls were still alive. And then what happened was they brutally bayoneted them, savagely bayoneted them to death. And, you, you, I mean, it's hard to imagine the scene. After 11 people being butchered in that room, the blood, the chaos... um, uh, the the pl- ballistics and forensics expert i I spoke to when I wrote to Katzenberg described to me how awful that scene would have been, and I don't think people can quite imagine how terrifying it was those victims did not die quickly or easily except nicholas and um it was so savage so chaotic. And the worst of it was so inefficient. This is why I say to people, you can't call it an execution, because I think people have a sense that, oh, they were lined up in a nice neat row and it was bang, 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 you're dead, you know. It was ne- not like that. It was so badly executed, so badly organised, inefficient and hideous.
4: Did the, the Bolshevik government admit to the the
2: murders? Well, this is where the whole can of worms begins to open up almost immediately afterwards. And by can of worms, I mean in the sense of who died, who's, you know, did someone escape? You know, who was Anastasia? Did she get away? All this stuff. Basically... um, The Bolsheviks very quickly, I think within a day, acknowledged they'd shot Nicholas. And that was pretty much a foregone conclusion. Everyone was expecting, sooner or later, either that he'd be taken back to Moscow and put on trial and executed, or it would happen. And I think actually privately, even Nicholas himself was expecting that that would be the price to pay, and possibly even his wife too, that she would be killed. But the horror of it was... That no one ever thought for a moment that the children would all be murdered. So the Bolsheviks, within a day, admitted Nicholas had been killed. Word got out into the West, and it was generally circulated in the foreign press that Nicholas was dead. And obviously the royal relatives here, there and everywhere knew that. But the awful thing the Bolsheviks did, and it is right from the start, they allowed everyone to be confused and uncertain about the fate of the women. So what happens is, variously, people first of all assume probably Alexei would have been killed as the heir to the throne after Nicholas, as the male heir. But they Bolsheviks did not say what they'd done with the women. And they started giving out these vague stories about, oh, they were taken away to a place of safety, somewhere near Pam, put on a train, but we've lost touch with their escort and we don't know where they are at this precise moment. So what happens is everyone abroad is speculating, are they dead, are they alive, have they been rescued? And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the worst of it was all the time people in the West thought there was a chance the women were still alive, they carried on making representations to get them out. And, of course, at the centre of it all was King Alfonso of Spain, who really stepped up to the plate late in the summer. He'd, He'd been making appeals throughout that whole year and a half, but he really stepped up to the plate trying to get them out to Spain, or if not Spain, very late in the day. In fact, just after the family had been killed, He was appealing to the Pope and the Vatican had offered to take them in and not only take them in, but to support them all financially. But the awfulness of it is all these
5: negotiations were going on, but they were all dead. But no one knew. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel history historyextra
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring Need to hire? You need indeed.
4: Your new book, you've drawn on some really new research. Um, you looked at new sources because the, the common theory is that George V could have actually saved his cousin, Nicholas, um, when in fact you're saying in your book and in, in our feature um, that actually that wasn't the case. There's so
2: many packed simplistic assumptions in this story. I was horrified when I went into the detail and looked at the things that were said then and that are repeatedly said now on almost every blog and website and in many, many books about the Romanos There's this pat accusation. Oh, it was all George V's fault. George betrayed his cousins. George didn't save them. Now, Right from the start, you have to ask the question, hang on a minute. King George V was a constitutional monarch. In fact, he was a parliamentary monarch. He was answerable to the parliament. He had no executive power, even in the very first place, to offer asylum. People assume George literally offered them asylum. He didn't, he did not have the power. He sent a fairly tepid telegram telling his darling cousin Nicky that he'd always be his friend and help him if he could. It was not an offer of a refuge. The offer, any offer to take them in for any of the European democratic monarchies had to come from their governments and not from the monarchs themselves. And in fact, this is the second misconception. Again, people think the Brits offered with George's encouragement. OK, well, they didn't. They did offer, but they didn't offer until they were pestered by Milukov, the foreign minister of the provisional government, to take the Romanovs in. Because the provisional government didn't want the Romanovs on their hands any more than anyone else really did. So I do ask the question in my book, if Milyukov hadn't, through Sir George Buchanan, repeatedly sent messages saying, when are you sending a ship? When are you going to take them to England? If they hadn't kept asking, would the British actually have voluntarily offered asylum to Nicholas and Alexandra? I wonder, actually. I seriously wonder. I mean, it's obvious that King George's instinct as a human being was to want to help his cousins. They were both first cousins. You know, uh, Nicholas had a Danish mother, as, uh, as did George V. And Alexander was closely related, of course, through George V's father. So they were all very close blood relatives. But the fact is, you know, he couldn't act purely uh, as a humanitarian gesture. Uh, The humanitarian gesture of taking them in cannot be taken out of the context of there was a war going on. There was revolutionary turmoil and civil war growing in Russia. The whole logistics of distance and weather and getting a a ship to rescue the Romanovs and bring them out of Russia. There were so many other problems concomitant to the actual offer. So it was never a simple matter of King George saying, oh, come to Russia, uh, sorry, come come to England, um, we'll welcome you with open arms, because that's that's just the baldest of statements. That's all very well to say, come to England and we'll give you a little place to live in somewhere. How were you going to get them out? Um, and this is what people don't stop to think of how incredibly complicated it was logistically.
4: Mm. Do you think more might have been done if, um, if, if the British Parliament and, and George had, had sort of had an inkling that the whole family would have been
2: killed? Well, this is the problem. And this is why, after the event, when they finally found out by the end of September that the women had all been killed as well, the absolute horror among all the royals of Europe, but especially King George and Queen Mary, he had it on his conscience. There is no doubt about that. There is no doubt about how Absolutely appalled everyone was that the children were killed. And I think this shows the extent to which they were all rather complacent. They thought, oh, out of sight, out of mind, they're all in the middle of Siberia. It snowed in for half of the year. No one's going to hurt them there. But of course, the Civil War was moving that way. Um, everyone thought they, they couldn't possibly come to any harm there. And it never crossed anybody's mind that the children would be murdered. And so they all, all the royals of Europe who failed them, all the governments of Europe who failed them, even the people in the provisional government like Kerensky, who basically in the end failed them, none of them realised, you know, how terrifying the end would be for the family. And, of course, they had to live with that. And many of them in the years afterwards spent a lot of time, you know, covering their backs, writing apologetic memoirs or saying, oh, well, it wasn't my fault. I did the best I could. Blood blood of the Tsar is not on my hands, says the Kaiser. Oh, no, it wasn't King George's fault, you know. And they all passed the buck. But, of course, one real indicator of George's crisis of conscience and his horror that came afterwards was that when in 1919, in the spring of 1919, he sent a British destroyer, the Marlborough, to the Black Sea to bring out Dagmar, the Dowager Empress, Nicholas's mother, and quite a few Grand Dukes and Duchesses and Princes, because if they hadn't got them out then, the Bolsheviks would certainly have murdered them all. So that was his very late gesture, and again, he also helped rescue King Karl, the sorry Emperor Karl, the Austro-Hungarian Emperor, when he was in a tight corner. But of course, you know that could not compensate for the fact he had failed his Romanov cousins.
4: What was um, public opinion of of the Romanovs in in England? Um, what, what how do you think people would have reacted if if they had brought them back to to Britain?
2: Well, this was the whole reason George got so anxious and had serious cold feet about the whole thing. What you have to remember is their public image abroad was appalling. They had had a very bad press since 1905, since Bloody Sunday, 1905 in Petersburg, when peaceful protesters and workers marching for improvement in wages and conditions were charged and mown down by the Cossacks. After that, Nicholas becomes Nicholas the Bloody, the bloodstained czar. And the reputation of Nicholas and his wife abroad was at an all-time low by the time the revolution came, compounded by the huge unpopularity of the Tsaritsa and her deeply, deeply unpopular and worrying relationship with Rasputin. They were seen as this demonic duo who were manipulating Russia into the arms of Germany and and being duplicitous and acting as German spies. And, you know, and then there was all that ridiculous, salacious gossip about them having sexual relationship. And unfortunately, that entire um, demonization of Alexandra stuck And that followed her as well. And the whole thing was made doubly difficult because not only were the the emperor and empress deeply unpopular in Europe, with particularly, of course, with the socialist elements, who all sympathized with the revolution. And this was the crux of the problem of King George. He was told in no uncertain terms uh, by his private secretary, Lord Stamfordham, that if you have Nicholas and Alexandra in this country, there will be riots on the streets and left-wing protests and your own throne might fall. And George basically was whipped up into a sense of absolute fear that having them here might cause, you know, a Republican... Uh, uprising. I mean, it was exaggerated. Of course it was. Stamfordham has a lot to answer for in this whole story because I think he exaggerated the dangers and, and really very successfully intimidated the king. And it's interesting, I've found testimony that, that suggests, you know, the whole entourage were actually pressurizing George, manipulating him into basically reneging on his um, wish to help the Romanovs. And, of course, what happens is, after about 10 days of the British offer, he's begging Lloyd George and Balfour to pull out of any offer uh, and not go through with it because of the danger of bringing them to England.
4: Mm. Um, Were any, in those 10 days, were any plans made as to how any sort of rescue
2: might have taken place? Well, this is the one thing, frustratingly, I could not pinpoint, and I would give anything to find more evidence. I feel, and I say so in the book, but it's very difficult making claims about things if you haven't got the proof. I'm pretty certain Sir George Buchanan in Petrograd was desperately anxious to see the Romanovs get out safely. safety. Milukov, the foreign minister, was equally anxious to get them out of Russia and off his hands. I think the minute the offer came in, Sir George and Milukov were having a lot of private discussion about the means of getting them out. And we do certainly know that the initial request from Nicholas himself because the document does survive, he sent a note after he abdicated saying, I wish to be allowed to go back to Saskia to be with my family, let the children recover from measles because they'd all been ill. And then we wish to leave Russia um, by Murmansk, Murmansk on the northern coast, which was now be, um, um, a staging post, a military post for the British in northern Russia. So, His desire, his expectation, and I think the British idea initially was to send a ship to Mamansk on the northern coast and get them out, but he wouldn't have been able to get them out then in March because of all the ice. You know, They would have had to wait for the weather. So there have been nebulous claims about a ship actually leaving, sailing, being sent, and then instructions – following it to abort the mission and go back. But there's just nothing in Foreign Office or War Office records. And I suspect if there was such an initiative kicked off, and there are suggestions from other things, other sources I have, that some kind of plans were made. But, you know, this all may have been discussed via back channels for which there's no documentation because it was so secret. So it's very frustrating because the trouble is, without documentary proof of what, if any, plans there were, one can't argue uh, concretely for a British initiative. And so much of this story, people just accept a rumour, a thought, a possibility, and present it as fact. And there's an awful lot of wishful thinking in this story that simply is not backed up by evidence. Hmm.
4: And what about other European relatives? You've mentioned that Alfonso Spain stepped up. Um, did anyone else offer to have them?
2: Well, the trouble is uh, most of the Scandinavian, in fact, all of them, the Danes, the Swedes, the Norwegians, were all neutral, and they were fairly close relatives as well of the family, of course, but for all all for varying reasons, really did not want to take the Romanos in. It's the same issue for all the monarchies. It's too politically compromising having Nicholas the Bloody and his German wife, and so they all variously sort of hummed and hawed and sent mes- messages of of, of, of um, intercession and pleading and hope for help to be given to the Ronos, to the Russian government. But none of them really got up and banged a drum and said, we must save them because they had to all protect their own monarchies. They all had to protect their own thrones and they all had to look to the long term of their own economic interests after the war was over in sense of they would want to trade with this new Soviet Russia being created. So, Unfortunately, what it all boils down to, again, is that family loyalties, blood ties were not sufficient or strong enough to overcome the huge political problems in this story.
4: And uh, But what, what happened with, Al- with Alfonso of Spain in the end?
2: Alfonso, bless him. He tried, he made representations right in March 1917 and on and off all through this period, the Roman Oster in captivity. And he, when he finally found out and had to accept that they had all been killed, it broke him. It absolutely devastated him that he had not been able to help them. Uh, and of course... Later, you know, was it was in the early 1930s, his own throne went. But he, if he had actually moved to literally bring them to Spain, he would have, had an, conf, have been confronted with a, a very powerful socialist backlash in Spain, just as George might have been here. In fact, the Spanish backlash might have been even stronger. So in the end, I think towards the end, um, Alfonso realised that it was not going to be practical to bring them to Spain and that the best bet had to be a neutral uh, nation. And in the end, of course, this final last-ditch pleas were made to the Pope and the Vatican because it wasn't just an issue of getting them out however they were going to get them out. No one ever really drew up any detailed plans. It's what you do with them when you've got them in your country. Where will they live? Who's going to pay for them? I mean, it's one of the first questions the British government asked when they were making their initial asylum offer. It was, yeah, that's fine. They can come to England for the duration of the war. And that was the qualifier. It wasn't permanent asylum. It was temporary refuge. They can come here for the duration of the war. But where are they going to live and who's going to pay for their
3: upkeep? That was Helen Rappaport. Her book, The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue Russia's Imperial Family, is out now, published by Hutchinson in the UK, and St. Martin's Press in the US. And as I mentioned, you can read an article by Helen in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's issue, you'll find articles about the Civil War, a Tudor social climber, the Battle of Amiens, and medieval monks behaving badly. Look out for it in all good retailers now, plus in our many digital formats. Meanwhile, Helen is also going to be one of the speakers at this year's History Weekend event in York, which takes place from the 19th to 21st of October. You can find the full lineup for this and our other weekend in Winchester at historyweekend.com. And we've now come to the end of today's episode – but please do join us again on Thursday when we'll be talking about Nelson Mandela.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.